Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. It's on page 846 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you're following along there. Um, And if you do not own a Bible, feel free to take those Bibles home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. Mark 10, 32 through 45. And the title of this sermon is Jesus' Destiny and Ours. Over the last two Sundays, we've seen two texts that are contrasts. uh, The contrast of entering the kingdom like a child and the self-assurance of the rich young ruler. Today, we'll see a sharp contrast within this single passage alone. uh, As we learned in chapters 8 through 10 in Mark, uh, they're all focused in on discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? And in all three of these chapters, Jesus has announced his suffering and his death. He's telegraphing exactly where he's headed. So in chapter 8, verse 31, we read, And he, meaning Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he says that to the disciples. And what was the response? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. How about chapter 9, verse 31? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. The disciples' response? Arguing about who was the greatest. Now, in chapter 10, maybe they'll get it right this time. Don't hold your breath. Let's dive into our text, Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. This is the word of the Lord. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, 
They began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our four sections in this text are these. Number one, the end is near. Number two, a Jesus for me. Number three, wine and water. And finally, number four, true greatness. So let's dive in with point one. The end is near. Look with me again at verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Uh, A couple of truths I want us to notice here. First, don't ever take for granted little details that the text spells out for us. There's no wasted words in the Bible. Look at what Mark tells us. He says that Jesus was walking ahead of them. So whatever it is that he's doing here, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is leading them. He's stepping out before them to show them the way. He's on the road going up to Jerusalem. And we know what this means. He's on his way to his death. Clearly determined. And this calls to mind the words of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 50, verses 7 through 9. This is a text prophesying about the suffering servant. And it says this. It says, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Do you see that? Here, in Mark 10... His face is set like a flint. He's not lingering. He's moving forward swiftly to fulfill his destiny on earth. He's not dragging his feet in obeying the Father's will. And look at the disciples' reaction. Amazed and afraid. Why? Well, because in some sense... They, too, know where he's headed. They know where he's leading them. Are you ever afraid where Jesus might be leading you? Do you trust him? Even when he's leading you into trial and suffering, the disciples are afraid. 
then look at what Jesus says to them in verses 33 and 34. Isn't it amazing how specific he is here? In previous statements that we read earlier, he's told them broadly that he'll be killed and that he'll rise again. But here, he says they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, meaning the Romans. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, rise. There are eight specific aspects of Jesus' passion and his mission that are spelled out in these two verses. Many liberal scholars say that this is just too specific. And so in an effort to take all of the supernatural out of the Bible... They say, these words just must have been attributed to Jesus after all of this happened. But that's not the case. First of all, Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew Isaiah chapter 50 through 53 about the suffering servant. He knew that that was about him. He knew Psalm 22 was about him as well. So he knew the scriptures. Second, he had supernatural revelation from the Father. But some of these details were shocking. Specifically, that he'd be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, the the Jewish people had a day called the Day of Atonement, where an animal was killed, and its blood spread on the mercy seat at the Holy of Holies. Then... The sins of the people were symbolically transferred to what's called the scapegoat, which was then driven out into the wilderness. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. R.C. Sproul notes here that was what it meant to a Jew to be delivered to the Gentiles. To be placed into the hands of the Gentiles was to be sent out of the covenant community, outside the camp outside the place where the presence of God was concentrated and focused. So even in this language of being given over to the Gentiles, Jesus is alerting them to the fact that his purpose has something to do with atonement for sin. But I want us to understand something clearly here. Do you see how planned out all of this is? Jesus tells them specifically what's going to happen. J.C. Ryle rightly says that there was nothing involuntary or unforeseen in our Lord's death. Nothing involuntary or unforeseen in our Lord's death. It was purposeful in every way. See this. Many people look at Jesus' death as a tragedy. It's not. It's a triumph. He came to this earth with a purposeful plan, and he accomplished that plan perfectly. Do you know that the same is true for you today? God has planned each of your steps purposefully. No accidents. No surprises. Nothing unforeseen. Even when that plan includes suffering. Jesus is leading his disciples in this way. So 
he foretells about his sacrificial death. And look at what happens next. Point two, a Jesus for me. This is their response, verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. I hope that we can all see the stupidity here. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That's some gall, right? But isn't that how a lot of us pray regularly? Hey, God, I know I haven't talked to you in a while, but I really need this thing to happen now. And I really want for you to do for me whatever I ask. You see, we have this internal belief that God exists for us and not the other way around. He's our puppet. And when we say jump, he's supposed to say how high. Or we get upset and blame him. But in reality, we're all James and John. Robert Raines once wrote this poem. He says, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. How they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. So I'll ask the question, does Jesus exist for us, or do we exist for Jesus? Well, in one sense, Jesus very clearly came to this earth for us. As we'll learn in a couple of verses, he came to die for us and ransom us. He came as a substitute for us. But we exist for him, to glorify him, to serve him, to obey him. Isaiah chapter 43 verse 7 says that God created Israel for his glory. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we as Christians were adopted to the praise of his glorious grace. And that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Romans chapter 9 is abundantly clear that all of us, both vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath, were created for his glory. This kind of thing is all over the Bible. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. Yet, here you have James and John asking for places of glory at Jesus' right hand and his left hand. They forgot the truth that, as Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations we must enter 
the kingdom of God. Danny Aiken powerfully notes that at the time of our Lord's greatest glory, there were indeed men on his right and left. They were not two apostles on thrones. They were two criminals on crosses. Existing exclusively for Jesus' glory and not our own? Let's just be honest. It's not our natural bent. Because of the fall, it's not how our humanity is naturally wired. We want easy glory. And we want Jesus to do whatever we ask him. James and John didn't understand what they were saying. Point three, wine and water. Look with me at verses 38 through 41. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What's Jesus talking about? Let's first take the cup. Throughout Scripture, the cup is a common portrait of God's wrath. Psalm 75, verse 8. This is one of many, many, many examples of this. Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. He's talking about his wrath. Remember Jesus' words in the garden the night before his death. Mark 14, verse 36. And he, meaning Jesus, said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Further, drinking a cup with someone means sharing in their destiny. See what he's saying. Are you able to bear God's full wrath? What about baptism? Different metaphor, same exact meaning. He's talking about being flooded with the fury of God's wrath. Think Genesis 6. How was God's wrath poured out there? In a flood. The Exodus. What happened at the Red Sea in Exodus 14? The Egyptians experienced the wrath of God through drowning. Jesus is referring to being overwhelmed by the wrath of God. So do you see what he's saying to James and John here? He's saying, on the cross, Jesus would both drink the cup and be baptized in God's wrath. A wrath that should be directed at each and every one of us. Jesus is saying to James and John, can you guys handle that? The rhetorical answer should have been no. But they still don't get it. They're like, yeah, Jesus, we can. We got that. They didn't understand. But Jesus 
in a sense, told them that they were at least partially right. Look at verse 39. (laughs) While they wouldn't suffer vicariously for the sins of the world like Jesus would, they would suffer for Jesus' name, and he knew that. James only makes it to chapter 12 of the book of Acts before he's killed by King Herod. John will be whipped by the Sanhedrin and eventually banished to the island of Patmos, where he'll write the book of Revelation. They will both suffer for Jesus' name, but they don't get that yet. They don't understand that Jesus is all about submission to his Father, who decides where people sit in glory. They're still asking for glory themselves. But before moving on, I want us to understand the wine and the water, the cup and the baptism, just a little bit more. Can you drink the cup and be baptized in the water? Are you able to bear it? The holy and overwhelming wrath of God. Just take a couple of moments to consider that. answer is no. You're not. I'm not. There's nothing you can do on your own on this earth to alleviate or satisfy the just requirements of the wrath of God. There's only two options here. Either you will pay for your sins justly and eternally in hell, or Jesus will. Do you understand that for those who repent and believe, that Jesus bore the wrath of God on our behalf? Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He drank our cup. He was baptized in our place. When it comes to the wine and the water of God's just wrath, someone must pay, either Jesus or you. Do you see how this is symbolized in the two ordinances that Jesus has given us? In baptism, we're identifying with Jesus' death. We're saying publicly, I'm buried with him. He paid the penalty for my sins. And my old man, my old way of life is dead. I'm unified with him in his death. And then with his life and resurrection. It's what we read earlier in Romans 6. In the Lord's Supper, again, we're identifying with Jesus. Each time we take the cup, remembering that the cup he drank for us 
His body and his blood poured out for you. He drank our cup and he was baptized in the just wrath of God for our sin. That's what's being symbolized partially in both of those ordinances. With the result of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're unified with him. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. James and John had no clue what true greatness was. And so Jesus circles the wagons. Point four, true greatness. Look with me at verses 42 through 44. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is about discipleship. Family. The way of discipleship is different from the way of the world. That's what Jesus is saying. True and lasting greatness isn't about how many people serve you. It's about how you serve others. It's about discipleship. So next time you're taking inventory of where you are as a disciple, don't start with Bible knowledge, as important as that is. Don't start with church attendance, as important as that is. Start with service. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Is this your normal posture? Your normal rhythm? Your normal way of life? Do you exist to serve others or for others to serve you? And again, Jesus isn't asking something of them that he didn't model. Verse 45 is considered to be the key verse in the entire book of Mark. You want to know what true greatness looks like? Look to Christ. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom many. See this. Jesus has told us that he will, in fact, die in Jerusalem. Now, in verse 45, he's telling us why. What's the purpose behind his death? Again, so many liberal theologians want to tell us that Jesus died just as an example of sacrifice for us to follow. 
No forensic or judicial transaction taking place here. While it's true that he is an example for us to follow, if that's all that he was, we're still dead in our sins. We're still slaves to our own depravity. Jesus is so much more than just a good example. John Piper says that verse 45 is what turns Christianity into gospel. He's right. What he means by that is that the message of verse 45 is incredibly, incredibly good news. Look what Jesus is saying. First of all, who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus. As the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That guy, that guy from Daniel 7, the one who should rightly be served, the one who has all authority and glory, that guy came not to be served, but to serve. How? By giving his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? A ransom is a price for redeeming or liberating slaves, captives, property, or life. A price paid for redeeming or liberating slaves, captives, property, or life. Quick side note here. In the early church, there was a heretical doctrine that that absolutely distorted the true work of Christ. And it was known as the ransom theory of atonement. They taught that Jesus died on the cross to pay a ransom to Satan. This isn't the good news. The only thing that Satan was paid on the cross was a swift defeat and a crushed head. Jesus died on the cross to pay ransom to the Father and Him alone. This is why Paul says that you were bought at a price in 1 Corinthians 7.23. We owed a debt to God the Father that we could never pay. Thus, we were enslaved to sin and justly condemned to hell for eternity. Again, Danny Aiken comments that We needed a ransom because we had all gladly and willingly sold ourselves into the bondage of slavery to sin. When he, meaning Jesus, purchased us, our slave masters, sin, death, hell, and Satan had to set us free. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus paid the price for redeeming or liberating slaves. He ransomed us by dying for us. And as 1 Peter 1 says, shedding his precious blood. Ransom is nothing less than substitutionary atonement. A perfect lamb in exchange for blemished ones. Death in exchange for freedom. Glory to God and joyous hope for sinners. That's why Jesus was focused and confidently moving toward Jerusalem at the beginning of our text. He had a mission, and nothing would stop him. And let's be clear. Jesus' life wasn't taken from him. It was freely given. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18 Jesus says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Again, nothing was involuntary or unforeseen. It was planned perfectly. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, that's ransom, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It's Isaiah 61, verse 1. Do you know what Jesus did with that text? Luke 4 Verses 16 and 20. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I love this, verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was not a martyr. He died purposefully to give eternal liberty to the captives. He ransomed us. Jesus gave his life freely. But I also want us to see that he gave it joyfully. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see that? He didn't ransom us begrudgingly. He ransomed us joyfully. Do you 
you see that? Now, I've already said that Jesus' death was more than an example, but it's certainly not less. His sacrifice as a joyful servant is a model of discipleship for us. Do you live for the Father's glory? Do you serve as a slave of all? Do you do it with the joy of the Lord? What would Jesus do? That's exactly what he did. I'll close with the last word of our text today. Many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the truth. Jesus' death on the cross was not a universal one for all of humanity. He didn't give his life as a ransom for all, but for many. He gave his life freely and joyfully as a ransom for those who repent and believe in him as their only hope of salvation. If you're here today and you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, we invite you to do so today. It's the only way to be ransomed from sin and death. It's the only way to eternal life. You can be part of that many this very moment. Jesus died to ransom us, and we exist for his glory. So find joy in the gospel today and serve your hearts out. That's true greatness, according to Jesus. Let's pray.